So today, we are talking about the stocking stuffers. Specifically, we are talking about those, those seemingly small, utterly practical gifts that you receive. Those gifts that no one really asks for, but that you can actually use. The gifts like, like socks and underwear and a shaving kit. When I was a kid at Christmas, I couldn't stand these gifts. Because you're getting ready to open a present and your mind is going to a million different places of all the awesome things you could be and then you open it up and it's a sweater that your mom wants you to wear to grandma's house later that afternoon. I remember I was nine years old, my grandfather got me a shoe shining kit. I, I, I didn't have shoes that could be shined, all I had were like cheap Velcro sneakers and I said to my grandpa, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do with this, I don't have shoes that can be shined. And he looked at me and he said, someday you will. And right now, I do. <laughs> so I got a chore for Christmas. That's what I got. Now, now, what does this have to do? What are the utterly practical, seemingly small gifts of Christmas have to do with the birth of Jesus Christ? Here's how it points back to the birth of Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus Christ is the most practical of presents. The birth of Jesus is the most practical of presents. Now, it is also true that the birth of Jesus Christ is this over-the-top, extravagant, undeserved, and underappreciated gift, like a, like a brand-new BMW to a bratty teenager. It's also that, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But it is also a gift that meets our truest and deepest of needs, a gift that proves its value on a daily basis. And, and it's important for us to look at this because th that's often one of the knocks against Christianity or spirituality in general. Uh, among those who've, who've rejected the Christian faith or, or faith altogether, what they say is, what, what does a belief in God actually get me in my everyday life? I mean, how does, how does a belief in God help me through the difficulties at work or through the death of a friend or, or through the anxieties I feel on an everyday basis? How, how does the, the belief in God help me with that? And my answer to that is typically this, that a mere belief in God doesn't help you with all those things. It doesn't. But a belief in Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose and is returning, who is God in flesh for you, that does help with all those things. And let me show it to you. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to focus on the arrival of these wise men, the magi as they're called. Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 10. Let's look at how the gifts of the magi prove the practicality and the power of the gift of Jesus. When they, the magi, saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Remember, it's Joy Sunday on the Advent wreath. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, we don't know much about the Magi, about the wise men. What we do know, the little we do know, is fascinating. Uh, they were not kings from the Orient, no matter what the song tells you. They were astrologers and intellectuals who were outside of the Hebrew faith, outside of the Jewish community. And they served the ruling class. They served kings and the wealthy, and they gave them cultural and spiritual insight. Uh, think of the Magi as 
as a hyper-spiritual college professor, someone who's very smart, they have their PhD, but they're also like into crystals and read Deepak Chopra. And they're asked often by really important people for insight into all the world's religions and all the goings-on in culture. That's essentially who the Magi were. And the interesting thing about the Magi is that they were so well-schooled in all the world's religions, in particular the Hebrew faith, even though they weren't a part of it, that they knew enough that when the star appeared in the sky and certain prophecies started to come true, they knew that there was likely the birth of the Hebrew Savior King. And then they seek him out. And not only do they find him, but when they find him, the, the lights turn on for them and they recognize him as the king. And they bow down and they worship him and they give him gifts. Now, this is important in the story of salvation for a number of reasons. It's important because the, the arrival and the worship of the Magi to Jesus, it, it, tells, us, it tells us who Jesus really is. And it gives us a picture of all that Jesus would accomplish, in particular at the very end. Jesus is not just the king of the Hebrew people. He's the king of the entire world. And the Magi are the first non-Hebrew people to recognize the divinity of Jesus, to seek him out, and to worship him. And in worshiping him, they legitimize him as more than just the king of this particular tribe of people. They legitimize him as the king of all faiths, of all people, for all time, the king of the entire world. That's what their worship of him says. But it's also a picture of how the whole story of Jesus is going to end. An ending that we've not yet seen, but is promised to us. The scriptures, and Jesus himself, talk about this. That in the very end, Jesus, who is right now reigning at the right hand of the Father from heaven, he will return. And when he returns, the way the scriptures put it, is that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, which is a fancy way of saying every person on the planet, no matter who you are or what you belong to, everyone will eventually recognize that Jesus Christ is the king of all kings, and they'll bow down and they'll worship him. It won't just be the religious people who bow down and worship him. It won't just be uh, the Christian people who bow down and worship him. It, it will cut across every dividing line. Uh, rich and poor will worship him. All the economic classes will worship him. It'll, cross, it'll cut across political divides. Uh, liberals and conservatives will bow down and worship him. It'll cut across um, age and demographic lines. Everyone from the millennial to the okay boomer, everyone will bow down and worship him. Everyone will recognize that, that Jesus Christ is king. And what you're seeing in the worship of the Magi is a glimpse of the ending at the very beginning. That's what you get in the worship of the Magi. But there's even more. It's, it's not just the arrival of the Magi that tell us something about Jesus. It's the presence that they bring, the gifts that they bring that tell us something about Jesus. The gifts that he brings, that they bring to Jesus, rather, tell us about the work and the person of Jesus. Matthew could have mentioned just the fact that they brought presents. He could have just said, hey, they brought gifts, and we would assume it's like a nice bottle of wine and some brownies from H-E-B. But instead, Matthew goes to great lengths to detail the gifts, and, when, and whenever the scriptures give you detail, you have to assume it's for a reason. 
when they could have just said presents, and he says, no, they brought frankincense, gold, and myrrh, that's for a reason. In the first century, gifts that were given, especially gifts that were given to kings, were given with great thought. The gifts were given not only to meet a need that the giver perceived in the recipient, to be of tangible help to them, but the gift was also given as a way of reflecting what the giver thought were the blessings brought by the recipient, the good that the recipient brought into the world. They wanted their gift to him or to her to reflect that. So, for example, um, according to this tradition, uh, you and I are friends, and I want to give you a gift of great intention and thought, and I know that you're going through a really difficult time. You're full of angst and worry and fear, and so I give you a journal, a journal so that you can write out your worries and fears because I think that's going to help you, so it has practical value to you. But I also give this to you because you know that I've told you that I think your thoughts and your insights are one of the greatest gifts that you give to the world. And I want you to write those out so that you have them and I have them and the world can be blessed by them. So my gift to you represents how I can help you, but also what I think is the greatest gift given to this world by you. Following with me? And the gifts of the Magi follow that tradition. So, so it's of practical assistance to them first, frankincense, gold, and myrrh, because this holy family is about to go on a pretty difficult journey. Immediately after the Magi leave, Joseph is told that he needs to take his family and hightail it to Egyptian territory because King Herod is about to try and kill Jesus in Bethlehem. And so they have to leave and go on uh, at least a 40-mile journey uh, on the back of a donkey into Egyptian territory so that they will be safe. And it just so happens that gold, frankincense, and myrrh are items of popular trade along the route from Bethlehem down into Egypt. So this was going to provide their funding for their travel, but they're also going to be in Egypt for a long time, a strange and foreign land where they're disconnected from their people. And so gold, valuable then as it is today, is going to be essential in them establishing a life where they're going to live in Egypt for at least two years before Herod dies. And so when, when the Magi present gold, frankincense, and myrrh to Jesus, who's just like a small little kid, Jesus, in his smallness, probably doesn't recognize it, but Joseph and Mary are like, oh, thank God. We so need this. It's, it's a practical value to them. When Lisa and I were first married, and we were, we were very young, and we, we had like next to no money, we lived far from our family, which is up in Michigan. And yet we would still travel up to Michigan because we wanted to see them, and they wanted to see us. And our family knew that we didn't have any money. And so what do you think they got us for our presents? What was stuffed inside of every single envelope that they handed us at Christmas? Lottery tickets. <laughs> Lottery tickets and cash. Because they knew that's what we needed to make the trip there and to make the trip back. That's exactly what this gift was to Joseph and Mary and Jesus. It was money for their travel, and for their sustenance on a difficult road. But it also speaks to the gift that the Magi believed Jesus would be. And this is what you can see if you choose to in the gifts. The gifts tell us about who they thought Jesus would be, the blessing he would bring to the world. That Jesus would bring for the world riches, gold, presence, which is what frankincense represents, and purpose, which we see in the myrrh. Let's dive in even deeper. Talk about gold. Uh, the gold is symbolic of Jesus' calling as king, of his membership in the royal family. 
And with membership in a kingdom comes the spoils of the kingdom. If you're a member of the royal family, you get the power, you get the position, you get the wealth. And Jesus had all these things. Now, he set these things aside in taking on flesh and being born as a baby in our world. But his status as king remained. He let go of the trappings, but he never let go of his calling as king. But here's the kind of king that he is. He's the kind of king that leveraged his human life so that you and I could also be members of the king's family. Through his life and his death and his resurrection, he clears a path for you and I to be his brothers and his sisters at the king's table. And you are a member of the royal family, not because you have the right blood flowing through your veins or because you're particularly beautiful, although every one of you is beautiful. You get this membership in God's royal family through simple faith in Jesus. The same faith, I might add, that the Magi had, which simply recognized the person and the divinity and the gift of Jesus. The ability to say, oh, you're the one. You're the one. And as a member of the royal family, you have the riches of the family. You have the riches, the gold of the family. The riches are the status, you belong to the king, and nothing can take that away. The security, knowing that all the resources of the royal family are working for you, not against you. The riches are the forgiveness that you enjoy. No matter what you do, your dad, the king, is never going to reject you. He loves you. He holds nothing against you. And not to mention like the, the creature comforts of the kingdom itself, which will be yours fully in the very end when Jesus comes back and establishes his physical kingdom in this new world. Now, you might say, well, well so what, Matt? What, what benefit does that have, knowing that I have the riches of the kingdom because I'm a member of God's royal family? What does that do for me today? Well, think about this. Gold and riches can give you a peaceful perspective. I'm not here to say that, 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 that money solves problems. It doesn't. But if, if I were to back up a Brinks truck full of all the gold from Buckingham Palace and drop it in your lap, it would change some things for you. It wouldn't erase your problems. In fact, it'd create some complexities for you. But here's what it would do. It would give you a peaceful perspective. At least it can if you let it. Because when something comes up, a medical bill, a busted pipe, a broken car, it doesn't have to rock your world because you're able to say this, I have the resources to deal with this problem. And that's part of the privilege of wealth. No matter what comes my way, I have the resources to deal with this problem. You who have faith in Christ, you have all the riches of God's royal family. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to be wealthy in the ways of this world. That's not what I'm saying. But it does mean that no matter what comes your way in this world, it doesn't have to be the end of your world. Because the king of this world, to whose family you belong, has given you the resources to face anything. Anything. Because nothing will take God's love from you. Nothing will take his love from you. And nothing can rob you of the insane inheritance that is waiting for you in the very end. In this world, you will have trouble. And when trouble comes, you need a plan. But when trouble comes, you also need a perspective. 
And here's the perspective that baptized, forgiven followers of Jesus who have all the gold, all the riches of the Father's kingdom given to us because of Jesus. Here's what we forget. We forget that we have a crown on our head and a king at our back and a castle in front of us. Remember who you are. You're going to be okay. Take a breath. The gold is yours. The riches of the kingdom are in your hands. The other day I mentioned the word frankincense to my son and he thought I was talking about Halloween. (laughs) And I told him off, uh, Frankenstein is the monster, frankincense is the incense. And in case you didn't know it, it's one that's still used and is popular today. Incense had a number of uses in the Arabian Peninsula in the days that Jesus was born. It was primarily used in religious ceremony uh, and in prayers. Incense in general, but in particular frankincense, represents two things. As it, is, as it is burned, the smoke that fills the room represents the presence of God filling your space. And then as the smoke rises, it represents the prayers of the people ascending to God's throne where he hears those prayers. In the Old Testament, frankincense was used as an element in the perfume that was placed in the Holy of Holies in the temple where God himself in all of his fullness was said to reside. Frankincense was the perfume that was smelled in that particular room. And so frankincense, God in flesh, Jesus Christ, is given to the newborn king. Incense makes sense as a gift to Jesus because of the priestly function he serves for us. Uh, Like a priest in the ancient world, uh, he facilitates our entrance into God's presence and makes it possible for us to experience him and reach out to him and, and pray to him and be heard by him. So because of Jesus... The promise is this, that you are perpetually in the presence of God and that you have unlimited access to him. The incense of God's presence is always around you. And no matter where you are or how you pray, it lifts up to his throne. Here's how most other religions work. Most other religions work like this. They say, you can have access to God, but there's a catch. You can have access to the divine, but you need a special person, or you need a special place, or you need to be really good at a particular special practice, and then you can connect to the divine. But what Jesus does is he knocks down all of those things, and he says, now, just through faith in him, you have unlimited access to him. You are always with him, and he is always with you. Did you know that? I know it doesn't feel that way. Like when it's a Tuesday morning and you're stuck in traffic on 610, it feels like the most God-forsaken place on the planet. I realize it. But in that moment of frustration and anger where you are stuck in a slow-moving Honda Civic, God is with you. The incense is thick. His presence is prominent. He is with you. Did you know that? And he will hear you, and he will answer you, and he won't hold any of your anger or your lack of eloquence against you. And he promises to guide you through his scriptures and be like palpably present for you through his people. He's there all the time with you at all times. 
you have some fear and anger that needs to be expressed, and it needs to be expressed to God, and you can. He's here with you, and he's listening. You have some big decisions in front of you. You need the wisdom of God, and he's got wisdom for you in his word. You have some places in your life where you're isolated and you're cut off, and you're all alone, and God's people are here ready to be his presence for you. You don't have to do it alone. All you have to do is speak and say and reach out and look up and say, hey, and he will hear you. Because Jesus has promised God's presence for you. I got a couple of dad jokes for you. What do wise men say when they get cold? Murr. It's a thinker. I got another one for you. What did the wise men say to Jesus after they gave him the gold and the frankincense? But wait, there's myrrh. It's a good joke. That's a quality joke. I did that just to embarrass my daughter. You're welcome. Myrrh is the most meaningful of gifts if you choose to see it that way. Myrrh had many uses in the ancient world. It too was an incense, but often um, it was extracted as an oil and, and it would be mixed with wine and used as a medicine. It was most notably used as part of the embalming process in the ancient world to cover over the odor of death. The Gospel of Mark tells us that as Jesus was hanging on the cross, dying for the sins of the world, he was offered wine mixed with myrrh as a kind of sedative. The Gospel of John tells us that when Jesus was taken down from the cross after having died, he was wrapped in linen cloths along with 70 pounds of spices, aloe, and John says, myrrh. This gift is seen by many as a hint, a nod to the fact that this baby was born with a purpose. This baby was born to die. In fact, that his life was born for death, and what would be his greatest pain, his death on a cross, was in fact this child's great purpose. This, this baby was born with a plan. The plan was for the baby to die like a man for the sins of man. And those words, plan and purpose, are very important. There was a plan and a purpose in Jesus' pain from the very beginning. They give him myrrh, which covers over the stench of death, which is given to the dying or the dead. Because God's plan was that in Jesus' worst, God the Father was going to be accomplishing his best. And because you belong to Jesus Christ, the same is true for you. Here's what the myrrh means for you and for me. It means that there is purpose in the pain of Jesus, but there's also purpose in your pain and mine. God promises that in weakness, he is at work. In your struggles, he is sovereign, he's in control. He didn't just save you through the death of Jesus Christ. He's showing you how he works in your life through the death of Jesus Christ. He uses our worst to accomplish his best. Think about how things work. When you're, when you're busted open and broken from some significant failure, you have never been more in touch with your need for God than then. When death is knocking at the door of someone you love, you are more thankful for the gift of resurrection and reunion and eternity than ever before. When you go without something you love, you are suddenly appreciative of all the other things that you have. In the aftermath of tragedy, God moves among people to bring reform and offers of empathy that would have never been known otherwise. He uses our worst and our pain to accomplish 
his best and what's beautiful. That was true in the death of Jesus, and it is true for all people, especially those who belong to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying you're always going to be able to see the purpose in your pain. You're always going to be able to appreciate it. What I am saying is this. Here's what Jesus' death tells us. God works through, a, God works through pain to accomplish his purposes. And so in your pain, there is always a purpose. God works through our pain to accomplish his purposes, so in your pain, there is always a purpose. He's working, he's moving at the very least. If you open your eyes to see it, he's making you aware of your need for him. And this is a message that our culture desperately needs to hear. Because as our world continues to embrace secular humanism as the primary worldview, and scientism, the belief that science has the answer not just for some things, but absolutely everything, the world will become increasingly devoid of hope. And I don't know if you've noticed, but our world is getting increasingly hopeless. And if you don't believe me, just look at the rates of self-harm and suicide in our world, or addiction and despair and anxiety and struggle. I'm not against humans. I have several in my life. I'm not at all against science. I, I love it, but I believe that humans and science can only tell us some things. They only paint a portion, an important portion, but a portion of the picture. It only paints the picture that tells you what's happening in the world. It can't tell you for what purpose or toward what end or with what meaning. That's where faith comes in. Without faith, there is no purpose. The question of what's the why, why is this happening, is always we don't know or nothing, zero. There is no point. And I don't know about you, but as I go through my day and as I experience struggles, the fact that there's no answer to pain, there's no point to your struggle doesn't satisfy me. I reject that idea. And some of you are going through some horrible things right now, and I don't want to take anything away from the pain that you're feeling, but here's what I want you to know. What I want you to know is this, that though you can't see it, there is purpose in that pain. Jesus is about to be born, and he is God, and he will suffer like you, and he will struggle like you, and he will die like you. But through it all, he will forgive you. He will claim you, and he will make it clear to you that he knows your pains. And in his kingdom, there's always purpose in it. Jesus is the most practical of presence if you choose to see it. He is incredible and undeserved, yes, but he's also a gift that meets your deepest of needs and has practical daily application. But like most practical gifts, it works best if you actually open it and put it on. What would it mean for you to go to work tomorrow and face your troubles knowing that you have the riches of the kingdom? And that the things that, that shake your world don't mean the end of the world for you. You have the resources to deal with whatever comes your way. What would it mean for you to make time in your day to enjoy the access that you have to God, to actually speak to him and reach out to him? What would it look like for you? And what would it mean for you the next time something bad happens, rather than simply say, look at what's happening for me, for you instead to ask a question, God, what are you doing in me? What are you teaching me? What good could come out of this for me? What are you up to in me 
through this pain. Is that even possible for you? I think it is. What if you asked that question? Some of you, when you walked in, you grabbed a gift. You were instructed not to open it, but you can take it out now and open it up now. As you open it up, and if you didn't get one, we have some on the way out you can grab and take home. Once you open it up, take it out and show the people around you what it is. This is yours to keep. You don't have to give it back. What did you get? What did grandma get you? That's right, she got you socks. What else did you expect? It's a practical gift. And friends, so is Jesus. And with most practical gifts, they work best if you take them out, you put them on, and you actually wear them. That's how you appreciate them. May you do the same with the gift that is Jesus. You are rich, you have his presence, and there is purpose no matter what. Amen. Let's pray.